0: Welcome to the Health Advisor Companion Podcast. My name is Stan Campbell, partner at DAC Beechcroft. In today's podcast, we'll be exploring how the future patient experience continues to change in response to global trends, such as technological evolution, and in response to the more immediate short-term impacts of the pandemic. I'm joined by my colleagues Leslie Hughes and Andrea Proudlock to discuss. first thing to say is that since we published our article on the future of the patient' experience in January, the government has published its white paper on integration and innovation in health and social care. The white paper puts a huge amount of emphasis on place. Andrea, perhaps you could start by just explaining a little more around place.
1: Thanks Dan. So what I think they're talking about when they're talking about place it's, it's looking at communities really and what communities actually need. So different communities across the country, obviously, as we know, have very different health needs. I mean, the statistic that's thrown about quite a bit is that there's a 19 year difference in life expectancy between the most deprived and um, the most wealthy neighbourhoods in the country. And of course, with that disparity comes a greater amount of financial need in relation to the poorer communities. So, you find that the poorer communities will be accessing a lot more healthcare than the more wealthy communities. So, places looking at what each community needs, recognizing that it's very different, and then trying to think about how you actually get everybody. To work together for the best interests of that actual community outside of the boundaries, really, of the organisations that are already set up like the NHS or local authorities.
0: That's really interesting. So what do you think the effect of place will be on infrastructure?
1: So I think it's going to affect it because it's all going to be about integration. So there's going to be this closer integration between, I think, most obviously, the NHS and local government. So with these new integrated care systems, it's all about working together and collaboration. And I think as we have more conversations and working closely with health and wellbeing boards, we're going to find that actually... Buildings and what they're used for, it'll become more diverse, I think. So you'll end up perhaps like we used to have in the old primary care trust days where you have these larger buildings with dentists, GPs, a bit of mental health, perhaps some recreational use, a pharmacy and an acute trust in there so that everybody will start working more closely together within the communities. So I think around that, we're going to have to start to think about ways of actually getting that collaboration to work within these buildings and thinking about whether we need boards and things like that to help run the buildings to drive collaboration. So I think it's going to change what healthcare real estate actually looks like at the minute. It'll become less siloed and definitely more collaborative.
2: Andrea. Hi, Lizzie. Hello. Um, You were talking about different organisations collaborating in one building and in the past we've had lots of experience of that and I've dealt with it with you in the past and it's caused an enormous amount of problems depending on who is the freeholder or the tenant of the building and how the relationships between the different organisations work. It's often the documentation isn't in place. How do you think that will pan out? Will that be different this time?
1: Well It depends, I suppose, on who you get advising you on your different buildings, because I think there's quite a lot of pressure actually put on perhaps your legal team to look at how you're going to get the building Mm. and the different documents to work together properly. Mm. So I'm doing a centre at the moment, which is going to be a new integrated care centre. And there we are setting up a board so that different members of the building have a voice and so that they can drive that collaboration together because I do think that there is a problem when everybody you know, gets their lease and they can become entrenched in their particular area. But I think when we're trying to look at these buildings, we're trying to make something a lot more fluid. So perhaps we're having mixtures of shared space and then exclusive use, but also a building that can kind of flex over time as well. And if you want to keep those conversations going mm. and to develop that joint working, then you need something outside of just the property documents. Yeah.
2: It sounds as though we've moved on from the dark days.
1: I think you do get that, though, and I think it's going to be a step change to actually to get to what I'm talking about now. I think this is like one of the first ones we've done where we've thought outside the box and thought about how are we actually going to get this to work in the future? Because I think too often you end up not knowing who's in your buildings and people, for one reason or another, don't like the lease, don't sign up. And suddenly you have a very dysfunctional building, whereas I think the whole thing around this and collaboration and place must be to get the buildings to work together to help promote that collaboration so that people within the buildings can have those conversations about the best clinical needs of patients to improve their outcomes.
0: So do you think these buildings would follow more of a traditional lift or PFI model?
1: I think the way that NHS England's going with the new integrated care centres from the documentation that we've seen is that you will have an FM provider. So you can have it so that it sits kind of outside of your normal service charge so that you're entering into what we've had with these outsourced companies before. So you're entering into what is like a PFI building. So it is like a fully managed building. So I think one of the things that it is good to do is to try and take out some of those problems that you can get through service charges, through tenants not wanting to pay perhaps so much, so then the landlord doesn't provide the services, or perhaps the building falls into disrepair, and there's arguments around the service charge. So I think we do need to look at a different way of running buildings, and certainly where I've seen it, where we've done it with these estates companies, where they have like an FM contract. So it's more commercial. So it has key performance indicators. It has rigorous times where you're supposed to do things. So more akin to PFI, it does seem to work better. I think sometimes service charges, I know we've got the new service charge code, and everything's supposed to be absolutely clear. You, see, you can see exactly what you get charged for. But sometimes within the NHS and some of these organisations, it's difficult to actually work that out on an individual basis, especially if they're providing services across different centres. So sometimes I think maybe we need to have a slightly different look at how those service charges work and whether it's a set amount that they attribute to different buildings to try and get away from all of these problems we have at the minute where we've got NHS buildings and tenants not wanting to pay the service charge because they've got issues about how it's been calculated. And I think it takes away from what actually the trusts are there to do, which is to provide the clinical side of it. And so we're distracted from that i mean i know that's perhaps a little bit out there
0: that's interesting andrea i think also and you know it remains to be seen but it might depend on where the budgets are also integrated as well i'm interested in your thoughts on how we might see powers and structures being exercised going forwards
1: Well, I think that's quite interesting as well, because I think one of the things we've got NHS England providing funding at the minute for integrated care centres. But one of these big parties that we've got now at the table, really, and that we're all supposed to be collaborating more with uh, local authorities. And of course, local authorities have really good borrowing powers. So I think we should look outside of just the NHS and have a look at local authority funded builds because that would fit within their statutory powers as well, especially if you look at their regeneration powers. So I think that's interesting. I also think there's a place for third party developers, private developers. So we see people like Asura up here in the north, building quite a lot of health buildings, and then the trusts taking them on leases and managing it all themselves and putting in their own FM companies doing the FM services. So I think we do need to look at that because I think a lot of the thing is that the buildings themselves have an effect on the mood of the people who are occupying them. And a lot of these buildings we've got are really outdated. So there is an opportunity there to update and modernise the estate.
0: That's really interesting, Andrew, because something that you and I have talked about a lot over the last few years, ways of getting private investment into the NHS. And there seem to be a lot of barriers, but we also know there's a lot of people out there. There's pent up demand to invest in the NHS and for people to do well by doing good, and they see the NHS as doing good. Do you think this is that opportunity?
1: I think it is, and I think sometimes it's a way of looking at the NHS estate and thinking, oh, well, all I can do is perhaps sell it, and I think there's a huge amount of opportunity there for actually creating things like investment leases and things like that, where actually you can get a third-party private sector investor who would really happily take a lease of a building for a set amount of time and then it falls away but that's valuable to them because underneath that they've got an NHS trust or public sector body paying a rent which is pretty much government back for a set amount of time and that lease in itself has got a value and you're still allowing the NHS to occupy beneath as it would in one of its own buildings so I think there's ways of looking at the estate and creating Money without actually disposing of the estate. And I think that's something that should come to the fore because I know sometimes people think, is that like cheating or something? But it's not. It's just the way that commercial property is looked at all the time. And there is this opportunity to make more of it and get some more money in, really, which is to the benefit of everybody, especially if it's not affecting how you're using the building.
0: And so that's perhaps where we come in, being able to join the gap between the NHS and the investors.
1: Definitely. But one of the things I think is that there is a lack of understanding in the private sector as to how the NHS actually operates. And then there's some sort of fear around it because they think that the NHS is just one body. So they don't understand that. So there's a decent amount of education that actually needs to be done. Leslie, you've come across stuff like that, haven't you? When you're looking at GPs and putting them in non-healthcare buildings.
2: Yes, I have. My expertise lies, on what we're talking about here, in premises costs and rent reimbursement for doctor surgeries. And I've advised private health clients who provide GP services, but they're provided through doctors who don't have NHS contracts, and therefore wherever that's provided, if there's no NHS contracts in place, and it's not possible to get rent reimbursement through the premises cost directions. So we've had to advise on structures that will ensure that the tenant at the surgery is a doctor's practice that has a contract, an NHS contract, either PMS or GMS or similar, in order that the rent reimbursement can flow where it should do. And then the private operator has interest further up the line, which don't interfere with the premises cost process. But when the private provider first came to us with questions of this, there was a complete lack of understanding of how the reimbursement provisions worked and what would need to be in place they didn't understand for instance that leases had to be pre-approved by NHS England before there was any prospect of being able to get reimbursement through premises cost directions because NHS England needs to be satisfied that the leases provide good value for money before they will consider reimbursing rent and service charge rates under them. So yes, there's quite a lot of work that needs to be done in educating all the parties involved in how the system works.
0: Mm, That's interesting, Leslie, because bringing it back to the article, there's quite a focus on repurposing retail and being able to fill some of that void space that's been left by the pandemic and things like that.
2: Yeah, it's interesting, the idea that retail will be repurposed. It seems like a perfect solution to a problem on both sides. We want care to be provided closer to the community that needs the care and retail landlords are finding it difficult to let premises. So it seems like a perfect solution. But the problem you might have is if doctor surgeries, for instance, are looking to take on empty retail units which have an existing lease and The terms of that lease are going to have to be looked at very carefully before any decisions are made to try to take it on as a doctor's premises because NHS England are going to look at the lease to see, as I mentioned before, it needs to be seen to be good value for money before NHS England will approve it, the rent to be reimbursed for a doctor's surgery. And NHS England will look carefully not only at how much rent is being asked for, but also what the service charge provisions are, whether there are any break clauses, whether the lease is 1954 Act protected, so the security of tenure. All of these are considerations that go into the mix and deciding whether the lease provides good value for money. So it's not just a question of finding a unit for which there's a lease already that can be assigned and just saying, oh, I'll take that, then that's really convenient. It's just by the bus stop and everybody will be able to get to the doctor's surgery because it's a bit more complicated than that. And if the lease has expired on an empty unit then you think, oh, well, that's fine. Then I can organise whatever terms I like. But again, the requirement under the premises cost directions that leases are pre-approved by NHS England before they are completed means that doctors who are looking to move into old retail premises really should involve NHS England in this conversation right at the very beginning before they get too far down the line because doctors should want to know straight away whether the premises they're proposing to take are suitable or not.
0: So, Leslie, on the assumption that there could be retail landlords out there, are there any key things, any red lines that they should be aware of?
2: The district valuer who does most of the valuations for NHS England in these circumstances is concerned about landlord break clauses because that endangers the security, of course, of the doctors being able to stay in their premises. So, landlord break clauses particularly if they're operable early on in the term, are a very big red flag when looking at retail leases. Service charge provisions in a retail lease look completely different to the kind of thing that NHS providers might be used to looking at at multi-let, NHS or local authority buildings. On the one hand, they tend to be much more detailed, which is a good thing. And they tend to cover off most of the situations where there may be lacunas in service charge provisions in the kind of old fashioned leases that Andrew was talking about before. But on the other hand, they tend to require quite significant payments to things like Christmas decorations or promotion, things like that, which doctors are not going to want to be involved with at all.
0: And also the public purse shouldn't be paying for those bells and whistles as well. It is just not appropriate for use of NHS money. That's really interesting, Leslie. Thank you. And it's interesting just thinking about how that retail repurposing, you have your GPs, that drives footfall into the retail centres. You then have complementary services like dentists and opticians as well. And then that very much makes these newly evolved retail centres suddenly much more attractive for other services like social care and retirement living.
1: So do you think, Stan, sorry, that, that your retirement living will be coming more into city centre, that rather than looking perhaps at some of the surplus sites outside of the city centre, that NHS trusts might be sat there, especially mental health trusts with large estates, they might be thinking, oh, I've got a bit of land there that might be right for a retirement village.
0: Well, there's different models here. So, of course, traditionally, retirement living, housing with care tends to be maybe around other residential properties or built within residential developments, tends to be kind of leafy in attractive locations and things. But I think as the city centres, town centres change, and if you have all these complementary services and also, potentially, vacant offices and other vacant buildings as a result of what we've seen in the pandemic, the more people working from home. Also, repurposing the office space that sits around the retail and creating a retirement villages within that office space that then feeds customers into retail spaces. The occupiers have GP surgeries and all the other services that they need, they've got shops. I think you could well see a change from those leafy suburb located retirement villages to having a lot more in city centres.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? Is planning then an issue for bringing things like that into city centres?
0: So, planning's interesting. I think looking holistically at it, local authorities are already looking at how to drive people back into the high street. And of course, local authorities are also going to be the ones responsible for planning. So I think the reality is that local authorities will meet developers part way here to the extent I mean, we've already got permitted development for residential office to residential, but I think to the extent that anything else is required for greater development of repurposing of the retail and then the repurposing of office or just fresh developments within city centres, I think it's in local authorities' interest to make that happen, just to see people coming back into city centres and high streets booming again. It's
1: interesting, isn't it? how the pandemic has changed things as well with infrastructure and health. And also, we've always had NHS trusts or ambulance trusts looking at buying logistics sites as well. So that's been another interesting thing that I think we've seen a little bit more of a trend towards following the pandemic and perhaps since writing the article in that we have been involved especially in locating units for storage of PPE and manufacture of PPE and looking at becoming a little bit more self-sustaining, I think, in case something like this hits again. But that whole move into buying logistic sites, again, that's another massive diversion, really, for NHS from an NHS estate background, looking at that and then seeing what you're going to do with it in the future, all of the environmental issues that may be there on the land. We bought an industrial estate recently with sitting tenants on it. So suddenly the whole health infrastructure landscape is becoming so much more commercial and so much more diverse. It's grown up, I think, since 10 years ago when you looked at it. It was quite basic and now it's not. It's getting more and more complex. And with that comes all of the accountants and all of the financial treatments and then how developers want things to work and then trying to slot that into what the NHS and local authorities can actually do within their statutory powers. So it's quite an interesting sector.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we've seen examples here. We had an NHS Trust client buy a large office unit recently. It's near the main hospital, but just They're focusing on how to get better use of their main hospital estate. And so they're moving all of their office-based people, as well as having people working from home as we are, they're looking at moving all their office-based people off the main hospital campus so that that space can be repurposed for clinical services, which is obviously much more efficient of that main hospital space. So I think there is a lot of change and one of the changes, one of the most obvious ones we haven't addressed in this podcast yet, but I think would be remiss to not mention it is the, is the new hospital program. And obviously that's going to be keeping people busy for the next 10, 15 years in terms of building new hospitals with the budget that the government has found for that. So I'm just really interested in your thoughts on that.
1: Well, it's a really great thing to be happening, to getting all of this new hospitals out there that are going to be built in such a way, hopefully, so that they're carbon zero and they'll just be more fit for purpose for 21st century societies. I think that that's absolutely brilliant that we're getting all of that money for the hospitals. I think when you're looking at those projects, that they are such a massive project to undertake Not only just the build of the hospital, but then I think you need to think as well, you've got all of your staff that you've got to move around and all of your any third party occupiers. You've got to sort them out, get them into the new hospital. But also, I think there's the opportunity there to look at the new hospitals and look at how you're going to run them and start afresh so that we don't have the same issues going on in the future that we've had in the past with people just moving around, you not knowing where everybody is, and then also having problems in negotiating leases. I think you've got the opportunity to put in some sort of structure so that actually you do have a standard lease there and you can start to run your estate more like a commercial landlord would actually run their estate and you stop spending your time negotiating every single lease that comes along. So I think Obviously, there's a lot to be thinking about with actually building the hospital, but there's a lot to think about out the end of it as well.
0: That's a really good point, because this is the opportunity to refresh how things are done. And I I know that in the past, we've put service charge frameworks in place for trusts to regulate their third party occupiers. And the trust has saved millions from being able to actually recover the costs of maintenance etc from those occupiers and not just subsidising their businesses even if they're also NHS bodies it's just it's right that NHS trusts shouldn't be subsidising anybody else who's occupying their estate and the idea of behaving like a commercial landlord and having a standard form lease I think that's absolutely right on the money really in terms of how trusts should be looking at managing their estate going forward so hopefully we see some of those changes happening. So I think we've covered most of what we wanted to cover today in our podcast, but Leslie, there was one thing that just crossed my mind and it's a bit left field, but we've been talking about technological changes and we haven't really addressed the whole change to digital GPs and digital consultations and things like that. I was just wondering, has this come across your desk in terms of rent reimbursement for GPs who aren't using their GP premises? Is there like a side to digital GPs and rent reimbursement and how it affects your world?
2: there tends to be quite a lag in valuation, So we tend to be working three, six, sometimes even nine years behind. So no, that's not come across my desk yet. But if you're a GP with an NHS contract and you have a room in which you have a big screen and Zoom facilities, then there's no reason why that shouldn't be reimbursed like a normal treatment room would be reimbursed. The difficulty in valuation will be the evidence of what is actually done in the premises because it's perfectly possible, of course, for the GPs to be doing their digital consultancies from home and then there really would be a question about whether that should be reimbursed.
0: Thank you both very much for those listening you can keep in touch with our content at wwwdacbeechcroftcom forward slash health hyphen advisor for the latest insight foresight and thought-provoking articles for health and social care professionals